0: This is a show for grown ups.
1: And they say bad words.
0: And they say bad
1: words. Say final warning. Final warning. Listen, you the to Some say that it's no good. And shark.
0: Hello and welcome to Jumping the Street Shark, the internet's number one podcast. Season 2, episode 7, Shark Fight.
1: Shark Fight. This aired November 14th,
0: 1994. Do you remember what you were doing on November 14th, 1994?
1: Getting hungry for that turkey dinner,
0: you know me. Tell you what Bill Gates was doing that week. He bought Leonardo da Vinci's Codex for just under 31 million
1: dollars. So I did some math on this because I was trying to avoid doing real work at work. At this point, he was worth $9.35 billion in nineteen ninety four, right? So that one purchase of nearly $31 million was 0.3% of his fortune. Not 3%, 0.3. That's the equivalent of you and I, Richard, spending about $200 on something. And in no way is that miserably depressing. But we got patriots. Thanks, guys. (laughs) In one billion more years, we can get a codex. (laughs) That's our our next goal. (laughs) The the hell with microphones. I want that codex, though. Also, then, the first female president of Sri Lanka was elected. Yeah, that's what happens to presidents, right? They get elected. And her name was Sandrika Kumaratunga. Very nice. I've been practicing in the mirror. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And Dale Earnhardt
0: wins the 44th NASCAR Sprint Cup.
1: Yep. And you know what's funny about that? I did not have to look up that date. I knew that. The fuck you say? Yeah, because that was uh, November 13th is when that happened. I remember it very clearly because that's the last time I ever saw my dad smile. He's not dead. He's just a curmudgeon. I just want you all to know that. R.I.P. Intimidator. The first public trains run through the tunnel. But I, I do have some sad news, though. Michael Greason Jarrett, famed archaeologist and gay rights activist, dies at the age of 60. His timeless classics live on, however might I suggest his article 16th and 17th century farmsteads West Welpington, Northumberland or if you're looking for longer fare I recommend his book Witten, an Iron Age and Roman farmstead in South Glamorgan."
0: yeah but remember when Sweden agreed to
1: join the European (laughs) Union (laughs) yeah that That was pretty cool
0: it's liver clobberin' time (laughs) let's play the street charts drinking game
1: now Nate what are the rules to our drinking game so far Whenever the sharks do the thing they're named after, jab punches, slimy oo slams, take a drink.
0: But we've amended this, as we always think about this halfway through. Mm-hmm. When Streaks checks himself out in the mirror, that is like the PG equivalent to whipping his dick out at a football game.
1: Yep, so that totally counts as his okay. doing his thing.
0: I want to make sure we're on the same page here. Whenever there's a horrible fish pun, I want you guys to take a drink.
1: Whenever Ripster gives somebody a cool nickname, Finn Meister, Jaw. Meister. Basically everything
0: with
1: Meister. Yeah, pretty much this the Meisters. <laughs> <Anytime> <laughs> take a drink. We... Hey, I didn't say my thing. Take a drink. Anytime we see our beloved guy in this sky, take a drink. Whenever we're reminded that the street sharks are not, and in no way associated with those ninja turtles, take a drink.
0: Anytime there's any gene slamming or any other Pseudoscience bullshit. Take
1: a drink. Whenever we're just blessed with the visions of glorious nineties technology, take a drink.
0: Whenever it's revealed that Dr. Paradigm owns another piece of property in Fission City, take a drink.
1: Whenever we get the return of a beloved character, which happens Twice. two or three times in this episode, yeah. Take a drink.
0: But the nineties didn't also give us great tech. They also gave us great slang.
1: Audacious. Tubular. Take a drink. Alright, so whenever they say one of their catchphrases, this is a little addendum we should have put earlier, but we didn't, because we're jokesters like that. If you hear an echo when they say their shit, it's two drinks. Double whammy.
0: And any time Dr. Paradigm transforms into the evil, more evil, Dr. Paranoid, take a drink. Anytime one of the characters, not just the sharks, say their catchphrase. Take a drink. Whenever there's blatant, lazy, recycled animation, take a drink.
1: Ooh, that is tough.
0: <laughs> yeah, especially this episode. I'm pretty sure really... ten minutes of this episode is stock footage.
1: Yes. Hey, is there any you want to add this week? Whenever you see one of the characters get hooked into another character. Take a drink. I don't know that it happens this episode, actually, but it's in there. Historically. Okay. I don't really have anything new to add, so... Let's shark dive into it, shall we? We open outside a mall, not a chain-link fence to be seen. But that's not where the action is. The real action is underneath, in Shark HQ, where Ripster and Lena are doing some sciency things on a computer, while also helpfully recapping the last handful of episodes.
0: It's like they got away from it for a couple episodes. Like the whole gene slamming thing became secondary. Yeah. So they just went back and like recapped all their various schemes.
1: They said first, you know, Paranoid tried to gene slam all of Fission City. Then he tried to gene slam the, the kids of Fission City with his evil popcorn. And now they have all the information to prove this. They finally have it, enough to bring Paranoid down. But who's going to believe them?
0: And you're going to then- take your first drink of the episode. Because all that stock footage, I think they're so proud of that, like, alligator monster
1: hologram. <laughs> <laughs> they, just, they showed that like four times this episode. That's so bad. Meanwhile, Jab is teaching Slimu how to headbutt. But instead of headbutting, he just punches the punching bag that slimmo is holding and knocks him on his ass.
0: I think it's to show like he needs to be prepared for anything. It's a real Mr. Magagi. Magagi. Mr. And one of the
1: Mr. McGaggies. <laughs> Mr. McGaggie!
0: It's a real Mr. Magoo type of thing. Nope.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Miyagi, yeah. It's a real Mr. Miyagi type situation.
1: Oh, Richard, you've done it again. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have time to dwell on that. Someone is breaking into Shark HQ. But wait a minute. No one, except for the Sevius, maybe, and, well, Benz and Lena and Moby Lick, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. No, they're here, so who could it be?
0: The one other person you didn't mention. <laughs> our boy, Rox.
1: Rox is back! Take a drink. Rox is back in town to get his award for being the best new artist of the year. But you know what? I was a fan back when he was Melvin Krasnick, personally. F- I like his old stuff.
0: You fucking hipster.
1: <laughs> so the camera cuts to Lena, pointedly ignoring Rox. Like, was there some, like, sexual tension there? Because I just cut to her and she was on the computer like, this motherfucker again. <laughs> I think there must have been some some history there. I think she might have, you know, had a couple too many zimas one night and fallen into his animal magnetism. Rocks compliments the boxing ring, and Slamu says, Yeah,
0: Ripster's going to teach me how to box. Why would you get boxing tips from Ripster? Jab, that's what he
1: does. Figure out what Jab does. It's fighting. <laughs> right. It's like, he was literally just teaching you, and he's like, Actually, fuck Jab. Oh, maybe that was it. Maybe he was pissed at Jab, and he's like, Rips is going to teach you how to box, his Jazz being a fucking punk. Okay. Rox is suddenly inspired to set up his stage for that night's concert as a boxing ring. He describes as really like elaborate thing, glowing turnbuckles, all this nonsense, to be implemented in a ceremony that is literally hours away. He invites Streaks on to be the drummer. He says he's got to write a brand new song he doesn't know yet. This gave me so much fucking anxiety.
0: <laughs> he's more ill prepared than we are for this show.
1: That takes some doing, let me tell you.
0: <laughs> like, at least I was, we, we attempt to make notes and watch yeah. the episode.
1: But I was like, you, you can't do that, man. <laughs> like, you got Roddy's going to be so pissed off hearing this. You're like, I got a great idea. No, you don't. You had an idea three weeks ago we could have implemented. It's too goddamn late now. Ripster says he doesn't have any suggestions about what he should play for the music. But he knows it, how to get everyone to listen. That wasn't the fucking problem, Ripster, like It's the best new artist of the year concert. Right. Like people are going to show up, I'm pretty sure, man. Well,
0: no, because he's just trying to shoehorn his idea into his thing,
1: you know. Right. Like when your brother-in-law is like, "Hey, you got a podcast. Let me come on and talk about my like pyramid scheme." And I keep saying like, "No, you cannot come on the show, Devin." Rox says, uh, <laughs> "Lay it on me, you razor tooth soothsayer," which is really fun to say. I like that. <laughs> Ripshire tells them they have to have a press conference. Next scene. It's the old spooky hotel. Ooh. Yep, we're back in the old creepy hotel where Rocks first became Rocks. A group of fans are gathered around, chanting his name, while inside, a gaggle of reporters ask him uh, what this press conference is all about. Why are they even here? He said he's attached to this place because this is where he wrote his first song, which is horseshit. Maybe his first song as Rocks, but not as Melvin Krasnick. And also, this is where he fell in love with Fish and City, which, A-plus pandering from a rock star, you know? It's like... Mm-hmm. You know, I always heard that Cleveland was the best city in America. Ah. It's like, the boo, this is Pittsburgh. You fucking suck. Your Ooh. local sports team is very good. Your rivals? Not as much. Oh, and it's also where he learned the identity of the person behind all the attempted gene slammings. The Soviets are never one to miss a broadcast. <laughs> I should say Slash and Slopster are the ones that never miss a broadcast. Kilimari's in the background juggling his harpoons, and that's not a euphemism. Paradigm rushes forward just in time to hear Rock say he's going to release this information at his award ceremony tonight. This makes Paradigm transform instantly. Take a drink. A reporter asks if this is just a publicity stunt. And Rock says, nope, he's got evidence on a computer disc. It's like a five-inch floppy, too. It's not even like one of the 3.5s. Yeah,
0: because when it's in his hands, it looks... So why not just, if they have a press conference and all the news is there,
1: why not just play the disc then? Right. As soon as it's on the media, they'll repeat it later on, and if more than one network has it, it'll be hard to stop.
0: Which makes me think, he's just in it for the views? Like, I don't think he wants to expose Paradigm at all. And Nate, how does his
1: sunglasses stay on? He doesn't have ears. I was thinking about that. He must have to have custom sunglasses made, because his head is a fucking shark, so it's very wide. So shark skin is very sandpaper-like. We can all agree on that, right? Right. Is it rough enough to hold onto a pair of sunglasses? Or there's just, like, tension on his head, like, it's, like, pinched to his temples. I just assumed they were stuck in his gills. That would be like wearing sunglasses in your throat. (laughs) Like, that would be awful. So Killamari destroys the screen. He hates TVs just as much as Slamu does. I was glad to see it. But my favorite part about this was, like, he destroys the screen right away, and instantly, Paranoid turns back into Paradigm, like, what was it, just the sight of these guys on TV? They pissed him off so bad. As soon as it was gone, he's like Actually, a baby.
0: That was a yeah. legit funny joke, which I have to give it to this. He says, "This broadcast must
1: be stopped," and he breaks the TV. Yeah, and he's like, not like that. Uh, was, yeah, nice. I see. You. It's fine. Paradigm, now that he's calmed down, walks over to a refrigerator, takes out some cookies that he baked, and gives them to Killamari. Like all good transitions, we get that weird color wibbly wobbly thing. And suddenly, Kilomari hulks above Paranoid. Paradigm orders him to attack rocks, but instead, Kilomari attacks him! He shakes the fuck out of Paradigm.
0: And all his pieces are falling off like like cogwheels.
1: (laughs) He just shakes the shit out of Paradigm. It's so awesome. The CVs say, how dare he! And rush to defend their boss slash dad. Kilomari throws Paradigm into a computer terminal and engages with the other CVs. Despite being shaken apart, Paradigm tells the not to hurt Kilamari, which again, what a good dude! Yeah, like he could get another got another squid and start it over again. But now he's got attachments. Like he really cares for his people, which I'm, I'm not saying he's a good guy. I'm saying that he's a gray character at worst. The Sevius grab Kilamari and usher him out of the lab with orders to go capture rocks and bring him to Paradigm. And boom! Now we're back at Shark HQ. The boys are jumping on their vehicles and racing out there, including Moby Lick, for some reason.
0: And not only in that one shot, a few seconds later they're going down a tunnel. Yeah. And they each get, like, their own little glory shot going past. And he's there in, like, the monster truck again.
1: This was from the episode where he he appeared the second time. It's the entire exit scene of them driving away. What the fuck?
0: Which means lazy recycled animation.
1: And they were trying return of a beloved character.
0: Ooh, you counting that? I am. Thank God they weren't saying Jossum with an echo as they drove off.
1: No, that'd be too much.
0: Alright, take you two and let's move
1: on. <laughs> now we're back at the old spooky hotel, and Rox is jamming out with some real fucking weirdos. Like he's got women dressed up as boxers, he's got guys wearing foam shark heads. Well yeah, it's...
0: I assume that's his band of backup dancers and they're rehearsing.
1: <laughs> but it's just like they're like in some drug den, like some crack house. It's the only <laughs> hotel in Fish and City. Why? I guess there has to be better ones. Or is that part of his like his punk aesthetic? It's
0: like the Chelsea Hotel, where like said Nancy would hang out. Right.
1: <laughs> so I love this scene because Streaks shows up, and he's like, "I brought my drumsticks." And then it's like five seconds of him just like drumming on shit with the laziest foley work of like pat a tat tat pat a tat pat tat tat as he wanders around the room. <laughs> so Rock says he wishes the place was bigger to accommodate the full setup, and Jab and Slimu accommodate this by. Fighting through a wall with a big echoey shark bite! See, I what if that was. A shark dive? Well, they bit. They didn't dive.
0: I know, but they said dive.
1: It says shark something. Okay. And you must and you have to drink. It's a rule. My dad said so. We also missed
0: then before that. Ripster says to Rox, it's a jaw-some song.
1: I have to believe you. I don't have it written down, but, you know. Take three drinks, just to be clear. So, Richard, what if that was a load bearing ball?
0: It's not going to matter because this whole hotel's coming down in the next couple scenes.
1: So, but I think they didn't care at all because they know they're impervious to building collapse damage. You know, they've been under, what, three or four different building collapses now and come out without any problems whatsoever. So I think they just don't give a shit. What, just fuck all the humans that are in the building? They've never shown concern for collateral damage ever. That's true. Oh, <laughs> well, except for when they were heading towards that train tunnel. But I think they were worried about the train tunnel. Uh, Rock says, talk about room service, because they ate part of the room. Oh, and that's shit. just, that's awesome. Good job, guys. Ripster has a floppy disk with him. So, 90s tech, because no one fucking uses that no more. What's this? The room begins to shake. Is it because of their careless destruction of support structures? No, it's Hulkamari. Wait, no, it's, no, it's not. It's just Slash digging through the ceiling, and he's got a neck. Like, you had Hulkamari. Well, he's,
0: the, he's there, too.
1: Yeah, but he should have been, like, Kool-Aid manning through the fucking wall or some shit. You know, he shouldn't have been, like... He can't. Yeah. They destroyed it. So <laughs> Slash tosses the net over rocks. Slopster is also there suddenly. And his spears tackles Ripster. Slash picks up the net and hurls rocks through a closed door, out into a hallway. All the guy, rest of the guys shout, and a big echoey, SHARK ATTACK! And also, suddenly, Kilimari is there, too. And he looks pretty much normal size now. Well, I think the cookies wore off. Oh, but he's still full of rage and hard as a rock, so he's ready to go. He and Slopster are taking it to Ripster when the other brothers come to the rescue. Jab takes out Slopster as streak and Slamu attack Kilimari. Uh, Kilimari picks them both up at the same time and tosses them across the room. It doesn't count as them tossing him into something else. No. He's tossed, but it doesn't count. He cannot drink. Sorry. Put it down. He shoots some drugs at Ripster who blocks him with a bed. <laughs> And then Ripster hurls the bed at Kilimari and he says, Sweet dream, Squid Face. Jab tosses Kilimari into a wall and he sticks there, I guess, by his axe suction cups. What?
0: Okay, because I wrote, What is he sticking to?
1: Well, he's got suction cups on his back. We know that.
0: I thought that originally there was a picture frame there that had been knocked down, so he got stuck to the nail. Oh, God, no. So your, no, thing's, your thing's better.
1: Yeah, mine is probably appropriate for a kid's show. Ripster says, Shark dive, and goes into the floor to rescue rocks. And, like, a nice older couple are in the room below slow dancing.
0: If this was live action, that would be Stan Lee and his wife.
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. The ghost of Stan Lee and his wife. Oh, in 94, they'd be very much alive. Yeah. But I love that. Like the old people are like, whoa! <laughs> <laughs> so Richard crushes right through the ceiling and the floor. In the room below, there's a real fucking odd job, like, staring at himself in a mirror wearing his weird rocks costume. And ripster smashes right through behind him, and he kind of turns around and goes, "Cool." <laughs> I <I'm> just like, <laughs> it was so understated and perfect. These are the two best scenes in the whole goddamn thing. <laughs> Meanwhile, Rox is being thrown down the stairs by Slash. Not really long, overly fast.
0: How long are these stairs? Like a lot has happened since <laughs> he dropped him from. Did he go down to like ten flights while this is happening?
1: well he's kicking him real slow. Like he's falling like stair by stair by stair all the way oh, down he's
0: kicking him as he's going
1: yeah he's just kind of like nudging him with his foot as they go down so by the time it's <laughs> so stupid ripster lands in front of the front desk like just as slash and and rocks are coming down the stairs and the, the concierge looks up and says there's an elevator you know <laughs> hey, by the believe. way
0: if we if he's going to be in our movie
1: tony shaloup oh yeah absolutely so we're clear on that. Yes, no argument here. I think Rip should made the right choice because everything else in this fucking place is in utter disrepair and falling apart. I wouldn't trust that goddamn elevator. There's no mm-hmm. chance in hell. I'd rather jump through the ceiling and floor for several floors, past old couples and creepy weirdos. Rip should tells Slash to drop rocks, and he does violently. Rock says something like, You can't do this to me. I'm famous. Rock is all the best lines, man. By best, I mean stupidest. So they start circling each other like very you know fight to the death kind of thing. Oh, yeah, and he and, says, like, yeah. fighting is prohibited <laughs> in the lobby. So Slash throws a bunch of shit at him for his troubles and Ripster dodges it all. The concierge rushes over to call the cops. Ripster picks up Slash and throws him into a pole.
0: And the guy just says, never mind. Right,
1: like... No,
0: get here even faster. Because now my yes. property's being destroyed.
1: Yes, mind, hurry up, please. Like... I don't why I, I could not understand any logic behind that. They're not even cartoon logic. The only like, thing I'm
0: I'm thinking is that help, the street sharks are in danger. Street sharks just huck this guy. They're cool. The street sharks have it under control.
1: So Ripster picks up Slash and <laughs> hucks him out of the building. He says, Let me see your impression of a flying fish. <laughs> That's pretty good. Take a drink for that. And Slash is outside now. He then jumps down a big hole surrounding the foundation of the hotel because apparently the whole fucking thing is built on wooden scaffolding within a hole like a 30 foot deep hole what is this place
0: maybe it used to be a roller coaster that was converted
1: to a creepy hotel hmm yeah, all right that makes a lot of sense then they have slash that like stabbing it with his nose trying to break it apart if you wanted the hotel to collapse that's great why not have a hotel collapse cool there's so many better ways in this episode to do that You've already broken support wall you have hulkamari fucking around like this you had a thousand ways to bring this hotel down you didn't have to invent a 30-foot deep pit of scaffolding to to justify why it would fall down you've already seen it in utter disrepair like
0: right, you, a, a stiff wind would blow that place down
1: <laughs> oh shit one of the thousands of earthquakes that must hit vision city on the regular meanwhile hulkamari jab and slim are wrestling back in rox's room streaks the soloing lobster and eats him out of a window and while his brothers are fighting for their very lives from Roid Rage Squid, Streaks takes the time to check himself out conveniently in the mirror.
0: Well, we're gonna get two things because as the lobster's getting tossed out the window, we get a stinking shark. We do. We do. Oh
1: it's man, like, I missed that
0: stinking shark.
1: Oh, nice. Yeah. Like
0: <laughs> so we get one of those, followed promptly by Streaks in the mirror. So there's a
1: twofer. So Streaks gets his compliments though because Kilimari... Like, body checks him into the mirror from behind before taking off into the hallway. Slimu chases him down, saying, it's fourth and one, and he's gonna... Did you hear this?
0: I'm gonna gonna put your... Backfield in motion.
1: I don't care for that. (laughs) Don't worry, it gets much less erotic when he tackles him from behind. Kilimari is in full juggernaut mode, though, and he just punches Slimu off a nearby balcony and calls him fish breath which is, I think, the first time he's been verbal since taking the cookies, so he's definitely on the calm down now. So someone's got to, like, sit him down in a dark room, get him some orange slices, put him in a nice blanket, you know, just make him feel, like, safe and normalized. Next scene...
0: getting real low, big fella.
1: (laughs) This next scene is upsetting on every level. And I've already shared a screen capture this to the Discord. It's going to be the image for this episode. We show Kilimari riding the banister down several flights of stairs. And he's got no pants. He's got a belt on. It makes him slide faster. I'm so glad this fucking place collapses because imagine touching that railing after not knowing what just happened. You had to burn that hand. There's no recovery from that. It's covered in and ink. <laughs> 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 Normally I would be like, okay, well they just fucked up the animation They you forgot the color in that spot. But they took the time to draw suction cups on his ass. Did you notice that? It's, not, it's just like a Ken doll thing. It's, it's not flat. It's actually his suction cups on his ass where the shorts should be. They drew that on purpose. Yeah, wouldn't his ass suction cups just stick to the banister? Well, no, I guess they were higher up. He's like riding on his gooch. Anyway, much like our mental health, the hotel is collapsing all around us. We cut to commercial. And when we come back, it, it collapses. It's, I don't know, take a little break, a little the drama of it. But there really is none. Uh, the crowd that fled the building is upset because Rox is still inside. The hotel manager bursts out and says, it's all the sharks' fault for doing this. And he's glad they're fucking dead and buried in the fallen remnants of his livelihood. (laughs) Or something like that. I don't really remember. But wait, what's this? The sharks live because they have plus two resistance to building collapse damage. And they swim on out of the rubble with ease. One by one, they burst out of the ground and the crowd announces them all individually. So I guess they must have gotten some good PR and really worked on their branding. You know, that's, that's awesome. Good for yeah. them.
0: One by one, except for fucking Ripster.
1: That's right. And nobody Where is notices
0: he? for minutes.
1: But as if on cue, as soon as one of the sharks goes, oh, wait, where's Ripster? He swims out separately, but the crowd does not give a solitary fuck. <laughs> nobody cheers. No one screams. He's like, oh, yeah, he's there too. Cool.
0: Well, they've seen it four times before. It's not special anymore.
1: <laughs> so if you saw, like, a T-Rex jump out of your lawn four times in a row, you'd be like, and then the fifth time you'd be like, oh, mm-hmm. um.
0: Yeah, that, and he also didn't find the disc while he was down there, so they're disappointed in him.
1: (laughs) Ooh, poor showing, Ripster, go back. But, you know, don't worry, he probably has, like, backups, right? Because who the fuck would make one disc?
0: Yeah, I wrote the same thing. Why not just make a backup?
1: Right, like, why don't you have, like, a thousand discs and then give them to all the different companies? Broadcast it, put it up on the early part of the Internet. They had message boards back then.
0: Well, that's the thing. This is a big video, this is probably minimally 800 uh, megabyte.
1: Wow, that's a so lot back then, though.
0: That's what I'm saying. It would never fit on a floppy. But again, Thanks, why not just give this to the noose?
1: Meanwhile, back... I'm sorry. <clears throat> Meanwhile, at Paradigm's lab... Paradigm is chewing them out for being failures. His helmet is still broken for being shaken apart earlier, so I guess he doesn't need to be in a sealed environment to live. No, it or, just like, looks he, cool. That's it though. Like he could have had it open the whole time. He just likes breathing in his own fucking breath. Yeah. He's like a sick mouth breather. How does he brush his teeth?
0: I don't think he does. That's why he wears the
1: helmet. Oh, he's got halitosis, and he's finally like, "This is my excuse. Nobody will ever mock me again for having this terrible breath." Right. That makes a lot of sense.
0: Good to think, mate.
1: The Soviets are looking forlorn. Mikulamari reveals he has the computer disc. Paradigm takes it and thanks him again. Excellent boss, giving praise where it's due. And slides it into his disc reader. <laughs> Paradigm <laughs> nice. Paradigm sees all the evidence and then decides to doctor the information on it, doubtlessly incriminating the sharks for his crimes. And now we're back at the mall in Shark HQ. Lena is fervorously trying to recreate the disc in time for tonight's concert. Rips is like, Can you do it? Can you do it? And she's like, if, if you, you fuck shut off. The fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're back at Paradigm right away. He's getting fitted for some new attachment for his newly repaired suit. Like he had like a new this head cool thing.
0: shark helmet that he doesn't yeah. wear the rest of the episode.
1: It was kind of like a shark or a xenomorph maybe or something like that. I was like, this looks kind of awesome. I'm sure it'll come up in the next couple. Or it was like one of those attachments they were trying to pitch for a new toy and it just didn't take off. So he interrupts his tailor appointment to attend a meeting with the manager of the collapsed hotel. Of course, he dons his purple mumu before his meeting because he doesn't want to, you know, look unprofessional. The manager tells him that Rox is actually a quote unquote creepy nerd <laughs> named Melvin Krasnick. Paradigm thanks him for his time, hires him for some nondescript job because he's like, You're out of work, right? Let me help you out. Anyway, bye. But is it a big secret
0: that Rox was Melvin Skrillix? Skrill- Skrill- Skrill-
1: <laughs> Rox was Skrillix.
0: Yeah, no, but was that such a big secret?
1: Yeah, no one knew except for the hotel manager. It's so obvious. Yeah, because they look so similar with their completely Long changed hair. physiology and new clothes. Long hair. Musician. No, because he's got he's got like crazy, like rock nineties, like hair metal. Hair. He was
0: he was supposed to open the the concert at the Dress Like Your Favorite Superhero Convention, right? Uh-huh. He never shows up, and all of a sudden the musical shark does in his place. Yeah. Thank God, huh? Nobody Cause...
1: put two and two together. No, they're idiots. There's something in the water in Fission City that makes people fucking stupid.
0: No, what's in the water will gene slam them if it's combined with salt. That's true. Yeah, I just didn't think it was a big secret that he's Melvin Sneebly. (laughs) Krasnick, whatever. Krasnick, Krasnick.
1: (laughs) Who the fuck is Melvin Sneebly?
0: Then we get a bunch of stock footage of Rox's origin, so
1: take a drink. Now it's the night of the concert. Rox is getting pampered backstage as he waits to go out and entertain the millions of fans waiting for him. It turns out Lena was able to create a new disc in time, this is such a this is such a massively important job with the one remaining disc that can do this. And he's like, Hey, you look like a fucking trustworthy asshole. Here, take this. Why? Well, because he runs the T V board. Why wouldn't they have Ben's like come in and do this? Or Lena or the Ripster even, somebody who they can trust to do it. I get where they have to do certain things, but there's like smarter ways to do it than this episode's done every fucking thing in this episode so far. And like I know it's a kid's show. I know it's from the nineties and it's aged terribly. But like, oh man, this this episode frustrated me more than I think any other episode has. That's saying something. <sighs> anyway, the MC slash owner of the concert hall, who we saw in an earlier episode and we all loved, take a drink.
0: <laughs> oh, I did I wasn't even considering him.
1: Yeah. Why well, think did we, him, did
0: we take a drink for the concierge?
1: I think him and the concierge together count as one actual character because really, no one gives a fuck about them. They're not okay. like as big as as like rat scorpion, you know. <sighs> Anyway, that guy announces Rox and we see Ben's, Lena and Paradigm in the audience. Paradigm has his fucking shitty smug look on his <laughs> stupid face. Oh he has backfiffin gesukt.
0: A face you want to punch?
1: Yes, a face in need of a fist. The curtains pull back revealing the super sweet boxing ring Rox came up with mere hours ago. <laughs> and a puff of pyrotechnics and smoke erupt out of it. The band with streaks on drums rises into the ring. Whoa 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 shut the fuck
0: up. Who did you forget at 13 minutes and 56 seconds? What Who does a quick flyby to announce the night show? Oh! Take a Take drink. A drink. I got a musical nitpick. <laughs> Streaks is the drummer for the band, and he gives them a count in before they start rocking the house. Yeah. Why does
1: he give them a three count in a song that's in 4-4? Four four? Our bros are bopping backstage, but you know who else is back there? CVS! <laughs> They're pushing their way through a crowd of fans and crew members, and the Sharks, who are wait, suddenly on stage as part of the act in boxing, Ripster sees the Seviets, and is like, Shark attack! And they rush to engage them in melee. So what kind of cracked me up, though, is they go to the, the fight the Seviets, and they kept their boxing gloves on. <laughs> like, I think you'd want to have those off for this, right? It's part of the show. So they're trying to keep the illusion on, like, oh, this is normal, don't be afraid, children. They don't want to ruin their best friends good time.
0: Right. I don't get, like, why they would do this to mess with Paradine's plans. He wants Rocks to have a good show. He wants Rocks to play the, the disc. If the Seavius come and mess everything up, there's a chance that that won't happen.
1: Was it to distract them from
0: There's nothing, nothing to distract yeah, them. Exactly. He plays the show, plays the disc. His plan goes off without a hitch.
1: Maybe he thought it would get more people watching if they heard there was a Street Shark-Seavius battle and then more people would tune in. It's like, I wouldn't turn on the show for fucking rocks. But if I heard there was, like, gene-slammed humans battling it out on stage, I'm watching that shit. It's must-see TV, baby. Paradigm is in the audience looking displeased. He leaves the concert and heads outside. And then he decides to go on the roof for some reason with his grappling hook. So he zoops it up on the building and he zoops himself up there. And then he uses a skill saw <laughs> built into his suit to break into the building that he just fucking left and walked to the sound booth. Like... There's stairs inside the building. Why? Dr. Paradigm sneaking around
0: is like my favorite thing ever. <laughs> he's just he's not inconspicuous at all. He's he's conspicuous. And just the way he's like sneaking around and later on when he when he just walks out of the door backwards is like the funniest
1: fucking thing in the world to me. I wish he was whistling the whole time. <laughs> it's like a fucking refrigerator wandering the halls. <laughs> I like, got oh, nothing weird to see here, so it'll be cool. Don't worry, he's got a mumu and, and a fishbowl on his head, so... He's like kind of Discount Mysterio, if you think about it.
0: Yeah, but he wasn't wearing the moo when he was sneaking.
1: No, he was in his regular-ass costume,
0: right? If you want to call it regular, yeah.
1: Well, regular for him. So he swaps out the good tape for his doctor tape and stealthily sneaks out of the room. <laughs> and I, I mean, despite how stupid that sounds, it worked.
0: He's wearing headphones.
1: Back downstairs, we see the sharks continue to box the CVs on stage. In between shots of the guys punching, they keep recycling the same image of the crowd cheering, and it seems like four times in a row.
0: Did you notice, though, it's the crowd from the dress as your favorite superhero day? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There'd be no reason they'd be dressed like that at this particular show.
1: I mean, we've established that these animators are the laziest fuckers in the world. So take a drink. Yeah. If I could say one thing for using recycled animation... At least they all had pants that we know of, because it was kind of torso up, I think. So Kilimari now suddenly has boxing gloves on, (laughs) and with no explanation as to why this happened or when. But regardless, now the action is on Slilu and Kilimari boxing in the ring. The fight goes on for far too long. All the while, the fantastic tunes are playing in the background, which is great. You know, That means Rox is a real professional. He's not going to stop this. He's going to keep the action going. People keep to see him, and damn it, they're going to see him.
0: But then they have an overhead shot of the ring and it's completely empty except the two.
1: (laughs) The ring inside is empty but the two people fighting. Where's the band? Everyone knows you can't see sharks from straight above. That's why they're blue. Slamu seismic slams Kilimari up into the catwalk above the stage. With an echo. Yes.
0: Slamu slams.
1: With an echo. With an echo. So that's three drinks.
0: No. Is that four drinks? That's four because the echo is a multiplier.
1: That's right, thank you, of course. So, he he flies up into the air, especially into the catwalk, flies down right into a haymaker from Slimu. He flies through the air and ends up right in Paradigm's lap. Paradigm is like, fuck off! And the whole crowd watches this happen. Like, they show the crowd's reaction to it. The and fact- Pilomari just stands up and it kind of looks like a hurt puppy.
0: He just <laughs> slowly walks away.
1: Like, you can hear the Hulk walking away sound like, doo 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 Do, doo, doo. It was so sad. So the concert ends mercifully, and Rox comes out and stays to get his award. Rox thanks those that voted for him and says there's something even more important. He then plays the video that he has on his disc, which shows the real perpetrator behind these awful crimes. We missed a fantastic somewhere in there. And somewhere earlier, there was a fantastic that happened. <laughs> Whatever. So drink that too. But guess who it was, Richard? The mayor of Fission City. Another return of a beloved character. No one is less she the beloved? Mayor. The crowd is stunned by this allegation. The mayor denies it. And then we fade to black. We're back at Shark HQ when the sharks are watching the coverage of the events. They talk about how Paradigm now has a mayor in his pocket. Slimo asks, Paradigm controls the mayor. Is the rest of the city far behind? Ripsha says, Not if the street sharks have anything to say about it. The three brothers... Shout a big echoey Jossum and smash their heads together. The end favorite episode so far? This is the worst episode so far.
0: No. I thought the battle at the hotel was I think one of the best battles they've had.
1: It was the most dynamic battle they've had. There wasn't a lot of throwing people into right. people. So I'll give them I'll give you that.
0: We had things that like the goofy things that I like, like rocks and stuff like that, but with some actual gene slamming stakes. I think it was definitely the best drawn
1: episode. Yeah, I didn't notice anything glaring. Like, there weren't any straight-on shots of the sharks that I noticed. It was a couple, but
0: they looked good. Like, the muscle tone was defined, the lines were cleaned. When they were all coming out of the rubble. Yeah, that was cool. Like, that should be used in the opening credits, because it just looks awesome. And it's also the episode with the most
1: stock footage. That's what I think irked me, too. This felt like the laziest episode to me. I mean, last episode was bad. This episode was twice as bad as that
0: especially if they were picking up a storyline from like two seasons ago it would make sense this was to most kids this was like two
1: three weeks ago well that and like the footage they recycled was some of the stuff they had in previous episodes like with uh, the dragon thing but a lot of it's just like random crowd shots people exiting tunnels face reactions it wasn't anything that was an actual callback to a previous episode you know
0: so do we have any predictions for next week
1: well, I know you mentioned one earlier this episode. you want to just say that again? So we have it where it belongs for once. Yeah, but what was it? You thought a hotel manager was going to come back and get jeans. That's what I said. So
0: Paradigm offers the hotel manager a job. I'm thinking that he's going to gene slam him next week. And we're going to get a new Seaviewit.
1: I think we'll get a new Seaviewit. I don't think it'll be him. But I do also think that we're going to see Paradigm become more of a powerful figure in terms of politics next episode. Like, I think he's not going to wait to use his leverage on the mayor. He's going to use that right away.
0: And what do you think he wants out of the deal? Power. Well, I yeah. I know power, but what's his, his diabolical scheme?
1: No, that's it. He just wants power for power's sake. That's why he wants to gene slam all these things. He wants control over them. Everything about his whole shit has been control. And who's more controlling than a political leader? He wants power for power's sake. That's it.
0: Nate... Now it's time in the show where we want to get you learnt up. It's time now for Street Facts.
1: Oh, you're waiting for me to say the other part?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Shark fact.
0: There you go. In 1902, the world's first speeding ticket was issued. The driver was traveling at 45 miles per hour.
1: Oh, wow. 45 in 1902. That is crazy fast. Right? On wagon wheels. Yeah, like your brakes probably... Could, that would make sense. Like Your brakes can't stop you at that, that point. Hey, Richard. Yeah. The smallest shark in the world is the dwarf lantern shark. So-called because it is very small and emits light, and it's a shark.
0: And now something very special. Our guest today is a writer, editor, and producer who has created content in a wide variety of media, including newspapers, magazines, comic books, regular old books websites, CD-ROMs, remember those, and video games. He's currently an instructor at the Game Design and Development Program at Cogswell College in San Jose, California, and a prominent game writer with credits on such recent titles as Cuphead, Don't Deal with the Devil, Mafia 3, and Star Wars Battlefront. But of course today we want to talk to him about the limited series of Street Sharks comics he did for Archie Comics in the 90s. Please put your fins together and give a warm Fission City welcome to Mr. Evan Skolnick.
2: Hello. And Street Sharks, the highlight of my career. Oh, we know. (laughs) Of all those things you mentioned, Street Sharks rises above them all. (laughs) A fin above. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. I'm glad to be
0: here. We're happy to have you. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, prerequisite question. How did you even get started in comic books, strategy guides? uh, Where did it all start? Well, I mean, I don't know how far back you
2: want to go, but I was at Marvel Comics as a writer and editor for a number of years, you know, during the boom and the bust of the of the early to mid 90s. And, um, you know, when they began uh, downsizing the editorial staff, I was in that first wave, uh, partly because I had pretty much volunteered myself to be in that first wave because I was getting quite a bit of writing work at that time. And I felt that I could probably withstand that more than maybe some other folks so so this was at a time you know at Street Sharks you know uh, this was the time that I had basically was was pure freelance writer for comics and I was doing some Marvel work and um, Justin Gabri, who was the uh, who had moved over who I had worked with at Marvel had moved over to Archie and uh, he got in contact with me uh, during this time pretty early after I had uh, left Marvel and said hey I got this thing I think you might be good for it so that's how I got the gig on writing the street
0: sharks. And then, so were you basically just given the the script to the first couple episodes and just say adapt this or or how was that process?
2: I believe so. It's, it's a little foggy. It's been a while. (laughs) And, uh, um, but as I recall, yeah, those, those first, those first three issues were, were an adaptation of, I assume the script for the first few episodes of the show. Um, because if you look at the credits, you know, there's a writing credit that's not me and I'm, I'm adapting it. So, uh, I, I believe it, I believe, I don't think I had the actual animation. I think I had scripts or maybe even, maybe even just a, a treatment or a style guide. I'm not quite sure what I was working from.
0: Yeah. I wanted to ask you if, if you had, you know, the turnarounds or some type of series Bible from the show to work with, or were you just kind of left to your own devices?
2: We, we, we must have had that because the artists would have needed all of that for reference. Um, mm-hmm. so I'm guessing again, it's all from, it's mostly, this is mostly from deductive uh, memory here than actual real memory. Uh, we, we must, we must have had the style guide and turnarounds and model sheets and, and all that good stuff, uh, for the artists to work off. And I'm, I'm guessing I would have had uh, access to that too, but I was adapting, you know, the, uh, the first storyline, the, uh, origin story of the street sharks. And then, um, then after that, uh, Justin had me do a three-issue arc. After that, of, of an original storyline.
0: So, so, can you talk and and compare the process of adapting those original scripts as opposed to the direction you wanted to take your own story? Yes,
2: yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, when you're adapting someone else's work, you want to honor it and to be faithful to it, but while still realizing that this is a different medium. You know, moving it to from animation to the printed page and to sequential art, so, um, but but really, you know, mostly just, just being faithful to it and making sure it was gonna work on the page. And as I recall, we were doing the um, the Marvel method for this production, which was much more common back then uh, than it is now, and the Marvel method being the writer writes a plot, basically describing what happens on each page, but not, not prescribing how many panels or what the camera angles are for the most part, maybe putting in some placeholder ideas of what the characters are saying but not actual dialogue then the penciler takes that and the penciler decides the camera angles and the number of panels and then those pencils come back to the writer and then uh reacting to that we we write the dialogue write the script and so um that was the process we used and um so i would i would have been telling you know the penciler what to what is happening but not to frame it out and and basically that puts the that puts the artist in more of the director's chair uh, which i which is what i believe is correct because um, you know i think probably the artists are the are a better choice the person who to figure out how to visually pace it and so whereas writing uh so adapting you know that screenplay is is basically making it fit in the pages we have in the the time we have on on the page and then whereas with your own storyline obviously you've got some more leeway uh, but in both cases, your uh, everything you do is going to be reviewed by a licensor, right? So we don't own, Archie Comics didn't own Street Sharks, so it was a licensed product. And so it would have to have another level of review. The folks who own the property would have to approve everything we did. And so there's still that additional layer of um, review on, on whether it's adapting or, or original.
0: Now, can you remember a case in either Street Sharks or, looking through your credits, it looks like you've done quite a few adaptions, of any issues that the owning company would have, or any notes that you might have gotten?
2: Oh goodness, yes. <laughs> Where to start? I mean, th- this goes back to my time at Marvel because I worked on some licensed material at Marvel too. Like for example, I was the assistant editor on RoboCop and um, the Marvel version of RoboCop, and I remember the, the licensor uh, saying, "Can you st- uh, can the RoboCop not shoot people, please?" <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, "What?" And then I was the writer on the ill-fated Terminator 2 comic book series, which is my big break. And they said, "Hey, could you? Uh, your proposal has a lot of has some time travel, and uh, can you not have time travel in your series?" <laughs> and we're like, "What? Like these these, these foundational aspects of these uh, properties that that the that the company paid for." Um, but I've, I, you know, I've, I've worked with Disney, and you can imagine the kind of feedback we would get from Disney as well, mostly mm. on the art side, actually, not the story side. We've, we had no problem mm. with stories. But um, but yeah, and, and in this particular case, I don't recall any particular issues, although I, looking through these issues recently, you know, in preparation for this little chat we were going to have and we are having now, um, I noticed a few things that uh, I clearly were edited uh, that were um, maybe a little too saucy. I was I was having a little fun. You know, I wasn't taking this super seriously but it was paying work and I you know I was going to be professional about it but I was putting in some fun stuff for the for the grown-ups like you like you see like in a Warner Brothers cartoon if you watch it when you're an adult suddenly you see a whole nother layer of things that are going on and um, there's a there's there was a there's a there's a panel where um, Ben's says to the Sharks it seems like they're they're endlessly fighting and then running away fighting and running away I noticed this pattern in, in the story as I was looking it over again and one one of these occasions Ben says to the sharks, get your watertight fins over here. I'm like, what? No, no, I would have written watertight butts. (laughs) And I I know that I would have done that and someone changed it to watertight fins, which makes zero sense. And yet they didn't edit. The other thing I found, which I couldn't believe was actually in there and made it through there, which was one of the sharks is fighting, you know, one of the slobster or somebody. And he says, uh, and he's hitting, he's hitting, he's using a hockey stick to hit a puck at him or something at him. And he says, I'm going to give you a flying puck. And that that made it that made it through somehow. I don't know wow. how that got through. <laughs> but um, yeah, you got to kind of roll with the punches when you're working on unlicensed products, and especially licensed products
1: aimed that are perceived to be aimed at uh, young kids. So I have a question for you, though, because I'm just dying of curiosity. Do you remember the general plot of your independent three issues that came out?
2: Oh, I, you ha, you had to ask me that, right? You just I had to. I'm <laughs> sorry, I could not well, resist that temptation. <laughs> well, I, I dug through my my back issues here in my in my garage trying to find these particular ones, mm-hmm. and I could only find the third issue, of three, but they were being invaded. There's a giant crab, and there's <clears throat> there's an underwater Atlantis-like population. that's attacking fish in city. Look, looks very very dramatic stuff, but oh, um, I'm only catching the the climax here. So. Uh, I don't. I, 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 it looks like there's. They, they discover an underwater city like Atlantis right off of the shore of Efficient city, and they're pretty annoyed <laughs> by all the um, you know stuff that's been going on with the pollution. Uh, sounds kind of familiar. And um, and and sure enough, they they come to uh, a state of war, and so the, and the street sharks, being half human and half of the sea, are caught in the middle. So that's that seems to be what I was going for there. But I only have the the, the third issue to go by.
1: That sounds really cool. Yes, yeah, it sounds so much more interesting than anything we've seen on the show so far.
0: <laughs> well, just the thing is, they'd never be able to animate like you know. That's the beauty of comics. If you can draw it, it can happen. They wouldn't animate, you know, hundreds of Atlanteans invading Fission City. You know, right? I think I think we drew
2: about ten. So I, I don't know if it was that big a difference because um, <laughs> you know it's like that. It's like that old. Um, that old, there's a there's a comic strip going around that shows the typical comic book writer sitting next to an artist on a panel at a comic book convention, saying and and the the advantage of working in comics over other media is that if I want to show a million spaceships come in, to I can do that. It won't cost any extra money or time. And the artist is like, I'll kill you. you know, <laughs> <laughs> but we 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 did used to say that because it it was true to a degree. We would pay an artist the same amount of money for any page of, of art in comics. And, uh, and so, you know, we knew that, that you know, the, the budget was essentially limitless, right? We didn't have to be constrained by, by how many extras or how many costumes or how many costume changes. You know, it's amazing how even now, having worked in video games now for 20 years now, I'm sti- I still stumble over things like this. And one of the greatest examples I can think of where I screwed up was uh, in Marvel Ultimate Alliance 2, the video game. Mm-hmm on which I was the lead writer and we were adapting the Civil War storyline. And there was one point at which in our storyline would appear that Nick Fury and a bunch of heroes had died. And we wanted to have a funeral scene. And in the cutscene, I wrote it that, you know, all the heroes had, were in uh, you know, funeral black and you know, formal dress. And that's really easy to do in a comic book. And that's really hard to do in 3D. That's like mm. basically asking for 40 new models. <laughs> and they were like, nope. So when you see that scene, everyone's dressed in their superhero get up. It looks ridiculous, you know. There's like <laughs> totally total disrespect. No one changed for the for the funeral, but the, but they couldn't. It was it would have been hugely expensive for one shot, and so uh, yeah. In comics, there are things that we just forget that are that are difficult to do in other other media forms, and uh, that are, that can be very expensive to do when you're talking about making a new model for a character, for example.
0: You know, you brought up video games. How did you make the transition from comic books to video games in like what, 2000 or so?
2: Yeah, it just kind of happened. I mean, it it wasn't a plan, but I had I had very much been into video games for a long time since they came out, pretty much. That's kind of dating my aging myself there. But you know, I didn't see a place for myself in that field for a long time because it was seemed like it was mostly technical, and I was not a technical person. But after comics, kind of you know, after I left, you know, kind of put comics in the rearview mirror because there just didn't seem like there was a place in the field for me anymore. The industry was getting smaller and smaller. Uh, and I started working at, a, I worked with Fabian, him, my my old friend and mentor for, for many years, and he at, at Acclaim Valiant for a while, and uh, Acclaim, the video game company, had bought Valiant Comics, and and they were integrating more video game related uh, content into our uh, mix of stuff. So like we were Turok. starting to do, yeah, Turok, and we were starting to do not only Turok Comics, but like the Turok uh, video game strategy guide. And then there was a Turok Magazine we put out uh, after that with Turok Comic book Magazine, that had uh, that and a few other uh, characters that were coming up. But but we also began getting involved in the strategy guide side of things. So seeing how games were made from the publishing side, not from the developing side. And so I was beginning to get a little bit of familiarity with that. And then um, when that kind of closed out, I realized that you know the web was taking off, the internet was taking off, and I felt that was a place of growth. Uh, so I wanted to get a handle on that. So I, I basically spent a year working at a, a multimedia web shop, CD-ROM shop as a as a project manager, learning how to manage uh, technical projects for, for corporate clients, uh, like Payne Weber and stuff, and I learned how to uh, do that. And then that just kind of naturally progressed into uh, entertainment CD-ROMs and things for, like, digital trading cards and whatnot with Star Trek and baseball. And then that led into video games, uh, being a senior producer at a very small studio in New York City, and that led to another studio, and... And I was off to the races and it was really, you know, it, it, and while I was there in the, in the industry, I came in as a producer. So again, kind of leveraging my experience, managing creative teams. Um, I began to get involved in the story side of things because there really weren't professional writers in general working in games at that time. And th- sometimes the games would show that. So I could say, Hey, can I just, I see that dialogue. You want me to just do a polish on that? Cause I kind of used to do this for a living.
0: Now I also see that you're involved in voiceover work.
2: Yeah. So basically, uh, We would, uh, you know, I would I would help write the dialogue for a game along with other people, and then someone needed to be there when it was recorded. And 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 you know, before the before the days of the internet and fast internet connections, we actually would be flown to L.A. or wherever they were doing that, and someone who understood the story and the game had to be there to make sure we were getting what we needed. Uh, For example, the the kind of read for each line we would need, uh, someone who understood. If we needed to improvise how far we could push it before it would no longer work for the circumstances in the game at that, at that point. And so uh, I, would, I, I began doing quite a bit of that and I uh, got to work with some amazing actors, both, both name you know, famous ones and, and ones that are kind of more behind the scenes, but, but, but very, very talented people. And so you, you, you kind of get to watch audio directors because I wasn't really directing, I was kind of consulting. But you get to watch these audio directors really tease out the most amazing work from these, these talented folks, and it's just such, it's such the it's the best part of the process for a writer working on a game that's going to be voiced. Because for a long time your your lines are just words on a page, or in a spreadsheet often, and and then a, a, an, an actor brings them to life, and suddenly like they find things in the in the lines that you didn't even know didn't even know were there like meaning that you didn't even put in there, but, but that you feel is right. So it's, it's, the, it's like in comics, the magical time was getting the pencils back. And in video games, I find the magical time is getting to, to be in the booth or these days to be, to be zoomed in or Skyped in to the session by remote because we don't fly out anymore. We just do it over the internet. We can still We can hear very well and communicate very well with the actor. But to
1: hear them breathe life into the characters and the lines is just incredible. If there's one piece of media that you haven't had a chance to work on yet that you'd really just love to get your hands on, what would you choose it to be?
2: Well, I've always wa- I've always been very close to Star Trek, near and dear to my heart. Mm. And um, you know when I was in like high school going to college, I started writing a Star Trek novel and actually got an agent and you know pitched it to to Pocket Books at the time, and it got, it got rejected, very politely rejected. and And rightly so, it wasn't I wasn't ready. And I, I think that that seems like seems like it's always been at the periphery. I've I've I pitched for Star Trek Starfleet Academy at Marvel. Didn't quite get it. Mm. I'm not. I, I can't say I'm a huge fan of recent iterations of the franchise.
1: <laughs> that's fair too. Um,
2: but I'm a more of a classic Trek guy, going through you know from original and going through uh, Next Generation and and Voyager, and that's basically where I stop. But um, yeah, I would love. I think that would be. That's probably the the final frontier for me would be uh. to to get a chance to to really but but, but definitely focused on the classic interpretation of the characters. So that would be that would be very special to me. I, I would love a chance to do that someday.
0: You hear that Paramount Plus? Do you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I just cite
1: I just cite my chances by by trashing everything they've done in the last fifteen years. But yeah. You know, no, that's whatever. how
0: you get their attention.
1: If Ronald J. Street Shark, the creator of Street Sharks, came to you tomorrow and said, okay. We need you to start writing something. I don't care if it's a book, a movie, a TV show, a video game. Pitch me something. What would you want to go for? And how would you modernize it to a, a current audience? I don't know that I would say yes <laughs> to that proposition.
0: <laughs> Fine. A gun yeah. is held to your head. By picture. <laughs> As I said,
2: um, I'm not sure I would say yes to that proposition, um, even with a gun. No, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, you, you look at what has been done with um, you know uh, Ninja Turtles and Transformers and different directions that you can take one of these toy-based franchises from that era, and there's different ways you can go. Do, do, you, do, you, do you kind of lean into the humor and silliness of it, like with Ninja Turtles uh, has generally done, or do you kind of try to take it as seriously as you can get away with, like with Transformers? Or do you just throw up your hands and, and, and say, no, just just shoot me? And I, I'm probably going to go with the
0: third one. I would say, go ahead, pull that trigger. <laughs> Evan, I'd be remiss if we didn't ask you about Cuphead.
2: It was a, it was a really fun project to, to work on. It, w- it was a very brief uh, time as well. As happens often in games, the writer is often brought in kind of late. The the team is often has an idea of what they want a the story they want to tell and the world they want to make and they begin making it, and sometimes they get very far along in that process before they bring someone like myself on board, and uh, that was the case here. Um, they had a very you know the, the Moldenhauers had a very strong vision of what they wanted to do and and I they reached out to me because I had worked in in comics and mm-hmm. they they felt that was a good fit, so they they contacted me just through my website, and I was just kind of stunned because I'd seen the the uh you know the, the the previews they had sent out and everyone was was like oh look at this look at this game it looks like you're in, jumped into the middle of a 1930s cartoon right it was all hand drawn artwork but um but it was by no means a, a guaranteed hit at this point right and so they really were taking a huge gamble uh it was their, it was their personal money they were sinking into this thing wow. and so I, I was i was very excited to be part of it and uh, they basically Contacted me and said, you know, we're 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 this is where we are. We're trying to finish this up in the next few months. Can you come in? And we always knew we needed a writer to help us across the finish line. Are you interested? And I was like, yeah. So so yeah, they they had already laid out a lot of the story structure and the the, the game structure, and of course the themes and a lot of the characters. But I needed to give voice to them and and write you know 1930s appropriate dialogue. So you know doing research like watching the three stooges and marx brothers if you can get paid to do that uh that's 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 a good pretty good deal so yeah it was a lot of fun and um you know i i I, of course it did very very well i don't think on the back of my writing at all but it was still you know fun to be a part of that and to to see it come out and then watch people throwing their controllers at the at the at the screens because it's so hard (laughs) <laughs> uh, and I remember talking with with, uh, with Chad Moldenhauer about that during the the, the process, saying, do, "Do you really want to be this hard? I mean, is this really what you want to do?" And they're like, "Yep." I, are you are you sure? Because they're like, "Yep." So they had a very clear vision um, of what they felt this game should be, and and uh, they were obviously absolutely right because it was this massive hit. And and um, you know, I just like I said, just really pleased to have been to play any part at all in in that production.
0: Are there? Oh, you probably can't answer that question. Was thinking, he was no, ask I, it. He just say no. I don't like projection, Nathan. <laughs> oh, that's fair. <laughs> no, 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 are there any plans for any more future projects uh, in that series or
2: yeah, they they've announced the uh, DLC mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. for that a while back and they actually called it the, the delicious last course, DLC. Um, so uh, that's been that's been uh, revealed uh, quite a while back, and i I, I they're still working on it. I'm not um, working on it with them right now, unfortunately. Well, but, um, then who, but who
0: cares, Boo Cuphead? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> it, it may it may just be that you know logistically, it might have, you know, they, that we, we were working from across the country from each other, mm-hmm. and um, they may have just found a more local solution, which is fine. That happens.
0: What's your favorite piece <laughs> of like '30s slang or '30s insult that you stumbled across in your
2: research? Oh, oh my goodness. I wish, I, I wish I'd known you were going to ask me that because I have a spreadsheet <laughs> that I, I'm not kidding. I, I may, because I was, like I said, I was doing research and, you know, the um, the challenge is to, you know, use that language that isn't like Chicago, uh, like gangster language, because mm. that can also, you know, it's very easy to, um, to fall into that. And so I was really, um, you know, trying to make sure I got, it, right. So I'm look, now I've got the spreadsheet open. I think the one that we all that we all know is uh, you know we all we all joy from the, the Joker saying this is is to pull a boner. You know that's that's just too easy. We didn't get that one in there. But you, you pull a boner it means to, you know to, to make a mistake or play a trick on someone. Um, oh, <laughs> yeah. Get your mind and, out of the gutter. Um, but like, uh, let's see. I I calling someone a stumblebum. I wish that I wish that would come back. Yeah. Just bum. It basically means it basically means a, a bum, for the you know for the love of Pete and things like that. Lots of, lots of little things. I mean, I, I tried to make it as authentic as I could, without without uh, you know, making people not understand what the heck they were saying. So it was it was it was lots of fun. But yeah, I, I I did that research, and every time I heard a phrase I didn't think was something that you hear every day now, I would I would jot it down and, and try to find a way to work it in if I
1: could. It was fun. That's awesome. That sounds amazing. I, I want that spreadsheet. If I give you my email address, can you just kind of send that my way? <laughs> so, Evan, what do you have in the works right now?
2: Well, I, I've been teaching uh, the mm-hmm. last few years. I'm kind of uh, teaching the next generation of game writers and narrative designers. Uh, but uh, at uh, you said Cogswell College. Actually, it, it, rec- and it was Cogswell College until last year. It's been recently rebranded as University of Silicon Valley, but same place. We just got back to on-class teaching, on-site teaching, which is cool. Nice.
1: Um,
2: but... But I've, I'm working on several projects as well. I still do freelance uh, game writing. And uh, the only one that's been announced that I can talk about is called Arctic Awakening. And that is a um, game being developed, a small studio being developed, developing this game. And it is a game along the lines of like Firewatch, if you've played that, or mm-hmm. um, the telltale series, telltale types of games where I, where I used to work. So it's, you know, a choice based um, you know, relationship-based um, gameplay, not not like a heavy shooter type thing. It's more of a puzzle-solving and making narrative decisions that will affect your relationship with characters and, re- and affect your situation. So there's a, there's a trailer that came out um, a few months ago, and I am I'm serving as kind of a consultant and and script editor on it. So I'm not really writing the story myself. I'm just kind of again, the team has an idea of the vision, the story they want to tell but they will often bring someone like me on to help them polish it up and, you know, course correct and kind of get it to the level of quality they want to see.
1: That's going to be so rewarding in its own way. I mean, it must be a very different feeling than writing it yourself, but to be able to hone the next series of people, to be able to take on the torch is it's really cool.
2: Yeah, it kind of goes back to my time as an editor at Marvel, right? Mm-hmm. So I was, you know, I was working with with writers and, and artists and you know my my friend and fellow editor there tom reevert who is still there one of the i think the only person who's still there from when i was when i was on staff <laughs> there he would say you know i think it was him he said you know an editor's job is to hire the right people and get out of the way and that that is largely correct although you know you would still work with the writer and and, and talk with them about the stories and help them find their way without stepping on them without you know pushing them in a certain direction or this this direction or that direction but helping them to find their best their best work. And so I've always been very comfortable with that type of role. And in fact, I, I might even be more comfortable with that than facing a blank page, which is what you do as a writer when you are responsible for everything. So kind of coming to the table with something already there for me to, for me to, um, to elevate is uh, comfortable for me. And it's also something that it's easier for me to focus on while I'm also focusing on being a full time, you know,
0: professor of practice at a, at a university. So, Evan, what do you want the people at home to know?
2: Well, I want them to know vaccines work. I mean, how's that? Yay! All right. Uh, That'll be solved the problem. We did it, guys. (laughs) Oh, now, your millions get, of listeners will now fall into line and a,
0: help us the, get rid of this thing. The fives of people. Yeah, we're huge yeah, in, in Texas, the, Texas right now, so that's <laughs> good. If we could get him to do like a PSA, like the old G.I. Joe PSAs, <laughs> but with the street sharks. <laughs> <laughs> One of the, the sh- episodes. The street sharks say vaccines work. Vaccines are awesome. <laughs> One just of some. the episodes we we just reviewed maybe three episodes ago, Dr. Paradigm had a vaccine that he was going to inject everybody in fish and city with so that they wouldn't be uh, gene slammed by the evil street sharks and you know everybody was like, anti-vaccine and we're just watching this going like how can we even review this without <laughs> like so many parallels to today like yeah I, it just I think feels that's
2: in, i think that's in the issues i wrote i think that's in the same i think i adapted that that sounds yeah. very familiar
0: that was early then yeah because that was like yep. maybe episode four or five vaccines
2: don't change your
0: genes.
2: take it from the street sharks
0: <laughs> liberal government's not going to slam my genes.
1: <laughs> what's in my genes? Oh, is private <laughs> <laughs> that's why i wear this belt <laughs> oh my god so stupid <laughs> evan you've been an absolute delight thank you so so much oh
2: my pleasure again thanks for having me on it's, it's really you know i Any any excuse to dig through my garage for Street Sharks comics and I'll take
0: it. (laughs) Evan, and and just lastly, where can people find you on the Twitters, the Facebooks, my faces?
2: Best place is probably just at my website at uh, evanskolnick.com. We'll have a link in the show notes. (laughs) And you will be
0: amazed of what you find there. I I scrolled through that thing for 10 minutes and I was just shocked of what a part this guy played in my childhood. Uh, Well, I'm old. So, yeah, I don't you know. want to make you feel old, but... <laughs> but I it's guess there's no right. way to say that.
2: <laughs> well, again, thanks so much for having me. It's been a lot of, a lot of fun. And anytime you want to chat,
1: I'm here. All right, bud. Awesome. Thank you so much.
0: And thank you for sticking Ooh. it out another week with us here on Patreon. I'm your host, Richard Sullivan.
1: And I'm your co-host, Nate Magnuski.
0: And as always, be a freak in the sheets.
1: And a shark in the streets. Just awesome.
0: awesome.